The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with the bears breaking loose. New numbers this morning on just how split the market has become and just how bad some investors expect things to get. A different story when it comes to tech. After its longest weekly win streak in three years, and while the sector rally, it shows no signs of slowing down. And attention shifting from NVIDIA to Cupertino, where Apple's expected to unveil its first major hardware product since the Apple Watch. Plus, energy markets upended once again, this time in Saudi Arabia, looking to put the squeeze on global oil prices. And then later on in the show, after a week of goodwill and diplomacy by corporate America, tensions rising once again between the U.S. and China. It is Monday, June the 5th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thank you for starting your morning with us. Let's kick off the, ho- the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a very strong showing Friday for Wall Street, with the Dow posting its best day since January. The Nasdaq hit its highest close since April of 2022. Right now, we're seeing a bit of a muted start right now. The S&P fractionally lower, very fractionally lower, basically flat. The Nasdaq definitely fractionally lower. The Dow Jones actually seeing a bit of a reversal here, up a few points this morning, but we're going to continue to watch it. We're also watching energy, a very close eye on oil. After the world's largest oil exporter, Saudi Arabia is taking it upon itself to tighten the global energy markets, announcing a voluntary 1 million barrel per day production cut as part of a broader OPEC deal. Looking at oil this morning, we're seeing a rise here. Uh, WTI crude, the U.S. benchmark, up just about 2.5%. Brent crude, the international benchmark, just about the same. We're also seeing a rise in natural gas, up over 2.5%. We're going to do much more on this story throughout the hour. We're also watching shares of Apple as the company gets set for its 2023 Worldwide Developers Conference. It's set to begin at 1 p.m. Eastern time, and you're seeing this huge run-up for Apple so far this year, up almost 40% on the year, even up here in the pre-market, up about a half a percent. Tim Cook and company reportedly set to unveil a mixed-reality headset and what will be its most important hardware device since the iPad was launched more than 13 years ago and its most recent since the Apple Watch back in 2015. All right, time now for a check on the action in Asia. And that early trade over in Europe, our Germana Brissetti. She's standing by in our London newsroom with more on both. Germana, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, we saw a positive handover from Wall Street on Friday, and that has played through to some of the sentiments we're experiencing in Asian markets. All of these markets actually ending the session nicely in the green. You can see the Shanghai Composite, the relative underperformer is still up about seven basis points. We had the Cation Services PMI come in stronger than expectation. It's fifth month of expansion in a row, so something to watch out from the services side there. Hang Seng and Hong Kong up eight-tenths of a percent. 
Another very strong performance out of the Nikkei. Again, as we spoke about on Friday, at a 33-year high now, up 2.2 percentage points. And here we're being lifted by some of the chip makers, but also Uniqlo as well, the uh, fast retailer, fast clothing retailer. Australian index also up 1 percent. And the reason is because of the bounce in commodities we're witnessing on back of that OPEC Plus meeting. Switching over to European markets, similar theme playing out for the FTSE 100. Also, uh, the uh, UK index up 6 tenths of a percent on back of some of those commodities names. The Zetradex uh, marginally in the green, up about six basis points. We had somewhat disappointing import numbers out of the country today. And Cacahont in France, you can see, is also lagging down about eight basis points. And we continue to see an underperformance in luxury names. That has been a theme over the last couple of weeks, Frank. So, Jemana, I know we're also watching the financial sector. UBS out with an update on its Credit Suisse takeover. That is right. UBS says it will complete its takeover of Credit Suisse as early as June the 12th. The bank will assume all Credit Suisse's assets and liabilities, while Credit Suisse shareholders will receive one UBS share for every 22.48 shares they hold. Meanwhile, UBS is reportedly considering delaying the release of its second quarter results. They're supposed to come out on July the 25th, but according to the FT, bank chiefs may delay the publication until August to coincide with the release of a plan for Credit Suisse's domestic business. And today, you can see UBS shares are up 1.5 percentage points. Frank. All right, our Germana Brissetti, live in our London newsroom. Germana, always great to see you. Turn our attention back to Wall Street. The nearly 1.5% jump for the S&P 500 on Friday puts it on the verge of exiting its longest bear market run since 1948. That's according to Dow Jones market data. But the split in positioning within the market showing just how fragile this year's rally just may be. Data from the CFTC compiled by Bespoke Investments shows hedge funds and other speculative investors, they built up a big bet that the S&P 500 will actually fall. It's the most bearish positioning for hedge funds and those other speculative investors since back in 2007. And while the S&P 500 is up about 11.5% so far this year, it would actually be negative without the boost by big tech companies potentially leaving the broader markets vulnerable to a pretty big pullback if shares of one or maybe two of those companies start to decline. For much more on this, let's bring in Lindsay Bell, chief strategist at 248 Ventures and a CNBC contributor. Lindsay, great to see you. Great to be here. All right, so let's just talk about it right now, the broader markets. What's your view on the broader markets? Are you concerned that we may be seeing an AI, a tech bubble that could burst and impact the S&P 500? About a quarter of the main index is big tech. Yeah, no, I mean, this has been talked about ad nauseum, right, over the last several weeks or months even. And I know you mentioned bearish sentiment from the pros. Well, they've been bearish all year and they've missed the run up. And what we saw last week was the greatest inflow into tech equities last week all year long. And this is concerning because it comes at a point where tech valuations look pretty stretched on both a PE basis and a peg basis. So price to to earnings growth. Um, So I think that we're in this place where it's it's you know, it's precarious about where we go forward from here. Um, But what I do think was a positive was last on Friday we did see an expansion into other parts of the market to start to perform better. So industrials and materials actually turned positive on a year-to-date basis on Friday after uh, that move in the market overall. All right, so Lindsay, I want to ask you, you were just kind of questioning smart money as hedge funds and other these other big investors are often called, and you're saying they missed part of this rally. But the, the, the point that we're looking at back here is 2007, right before the Great Recession, 
they have this view. And now we're facing another potential recession. So is there some wisdom in looking at the moves they're making? Sure. You know what? There's always wisdom to look at the past, right? Mm -hmm. But history is never any guarantee, okay? So I think that's one thing to, to remember. And then another thing on the flip side of that, Frank, what I would say is Ryan Dietrich, a good friend of mine, he did some work over the weekend, and we're almost 20% off the bottom of the bear market here. And his historical data shows that once the market rebounds 20 percent off the low, it has always continued to end positively that same year. So there, uh, there's a flip side to everything, I think, Frank, and everyone picks their own position. Fair point, fair point. All right, so the Fed and its decision coming up in its June meeting, the big next uh, inflection point for the market. I'm looking at the CME FedWatch tool right now, 83% chance of a pause. Where do you stand when it comes to a pause? Yeah, I mean, I think that's flip-flop significantly over the past couple of weeks, which is absolutely normal. You always see that, especially when you're either entering a rate tightening cycle or coming to the end of it. So that's completely normal. Where do I stand? I think that the, red, the Fed does have room to potentially move higher. I don't necessarily think that they're going to do it at the June meeting. But when I look at the jobs data that we got last week, wage inflation that we saw, and just inflation in general, whether you're looking at core CPI, uh, core PCE, or even core services inflation, which the Fed has been looking at more and more for uh, direction of where inflation can go from here, they all still remain very elevated. Now, they came down from high levels, um, but they're still far away from that 2% target, and they've remained kind of sticky. So I do think that the Fed may have more work to do here, unfortunately. Lindsay Bell, it's so great to have you here. Welcome back to CNBC. I know you took some time off with some family things and also starting some new ventures. But it's really great to have you back. hope we're going to have you back more often. Hail to Pitt. Pitt alum yourself. All right. A lot, Hail to Pitt. <laughs> a, a lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors just have to know today. But first, we're live in Vienna, where as a part of OPEC's latest production agreement, Saudi Arabia said it will cut one million barrels of oil per day from global supply starting next month. Plus, after last week's China goodwill tour by corporate America, this week it is starting off on a very different foot. We're live in Beijing. And then later on in the show, much more on what's set to be Apple's biggest hardware unveil since the iPad, maybe even the Apple Watch. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Now to a developing story. We're watching the global energy markets this morning. WTI and Brink both popping right now, both of them up over 2%. 
This after the world's largest oil exporter. Saudi Arabia said it will slash production by one million barrels per day starting next month. That is on top of a broader deal by OPEC Plus to limit supply well into next year. CNBC's Dan Murphy joins us now from outside OPEC headquarters in Vienna. Dan, good morning. Take us through the key points of this agreement. Frank, good morning to you. Well, oil prices are spiking here after we saw OPEC ministers here in Vienna agree to extend their production curbs all the way out to 2024. But the big surprise for the markets, as you say, came from Saudi Arabia's energy minister, His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz, who shocked the market with this additional one million barrel cut to production starting from July, with the option to extend that cut over the next few months. He called it the Saudi lollipop, certainly the market sweetener the traders have been looking out for. In an exclusive interview with CNBC, he told me that OPEC Plus is now willing to do, quote, whatever it takes, channeling Mario Draghi here in order to ensure market stability into the second half of the year. Listen in. Trust OPEC Plus because it is the most effective international organization that is attending to a serious commodity and we are doing it with a great deal of responsibility and if this uh, gigantic uh, uh, deal cannot uh, uh, enforce that, I don't know what else we can know. This production cut comes against the backdrop of what have been quite challenging times for the oil market. Of course, we're tracking weaker demand out of China. At the same time, there's broad concerns about the macro economy, including in the United States. And of course, robust Russian supply into key Asian markets like China and India. So the key question now is, will OPEC have to deepen these cuts even further if it doesn't see the market stabilization it's looking for and if it doesn't see prices continuing to move higher from here? I've been speaking to analysts on the ground here in Vienna. The broad view is that we will still see markets tighten in the second half. One analyst I spoke to says we could even see oil back at triple digits by year end. Back over to you, Frank. All right. Thank you very much. Great to see you as always. All right, time now to get more insight on the move by Saudi Arabia and OPEC Plus and what it means for both investors and consumers. Victor Catone is the lead crude analyst at Kepler, and he joins us now. Victor, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right, so we just laid this out. So give us a sense. How should investors view this voluntary production cut by Saudi Arabia, the plans into next year, um, the move by Saudi Arabia, its biggest in years? How do you see it impacting prices beyond today? We're seeing the pop right now, but in the near term. I think uh, Saudi Arabia will do everything, everything that it that it requires to keep prices close to the $80 per barrel. That's roughly its fiscal budget break-even level. So it's important to keep in mind that in a period which, you know, people would think that going into the summer, peak driving demand, uh, effectively buying uh, across the entire universe is still very much robust, that that. OPEC would be afraid to cut production or Saudi Arabia would be afraid to do a unilateral one-off massive production cut. But they did, which show, goes on to show that the price is important, even though uh, demand is genuinely weakening right. with uh, you know, a tremendous amount of Chinese data coming in. Wait, Victor, but the I, price I, I, is very important. I, you're hitting the point right here. The price is important. So do you have a, a price target? Dan Murphy just mentioned he's talking to some analysts. They see it coming back up to 100 bucks a barrel. Do you see that set up possible? Also, looking at what Rystead Energy says, they're saying the Saudi cut is going to create a deficit of 3 million barrels per day in July. 
So are we getting close to the point where it's going to reach $100 a barrel in the next few months? Or is that more end of the year? I think we will not have triple digit uh, prices this year. But I think that the overall assessment that July will be extremely tight. We, we still don't feel and we still don't have it reflected in the prices. Uh, July will be extremely tight. And I think that the new norm will be somewhere in between 80 and 90. Uh, that's where Saudi Arabia and also the other OPEC plus heavyweights want it to be because, first of all, it's good for the budget. And second of all, it's not high enough. So it's just to antagonize everyone uh, around the universe. Effectively, if, if prices go back above $100 per barrel, everyone will be talking about peak oil. We no longer need oil. Why do we still consume it? Right now, it's a little bit more nuanced. No one is that afraid of oil at 85 as they would be at oil of, uh, oil at 125. Okay. I think that the end of the year will be actually weaker than, than the current period. The current period is ultimately where they should be cutting if they want a price response. Uh, from the supply and demand balance. I like that nuance where you just use. So these OPEC meetings, they kind of pull back the curtain on what these different companies think about the oil market, what their long term strategy is. So give us a sense. What do you think we learned about OPEC and OPEC plus specifically Saudi Arabia and Russia going forward and their strategy when it comes to prices and production cuts? I think they're thinking in the long term. They're not thinking about anything short term. They're thinking about having a stable market, which has a predictable price where they can invest and the returns that they will be seeing will be, uh, you know, reflecting that. They don't necessarily think about the smaller private producers. I, I, I would say that you could see that in the case of the West African countries where the production quotas were completely redrawn to reflect actual production, uh, uh levels, which are current ones, the, you know, the, the real ones, which are in the, in, in, in reality. This is not necessarily good for a private producer who wants to invest into Nigeria and Angola because they would be having a, uh, basically a, a limitation as to how much they can produce. So I wouldn't say that the OPEC heavyweights, OPEC plus heavyweights care that much about the private producers or, or their whereabouts. They very much care about their own feeling in the market and they, f and they care about the stability and they care about predictability. And those two Key two things go across the entire range, uh, be it in July 2023 or December 2025 okay. or, in ten, or 10 years later. All right, Victor Tono, we got to leave it there. But your forecast, oil could get up to 90 bucks a barrel. So far, the year high was about 87 bucks a barrel, something we continue to watch. And also, prices still below where they were after the April cuts. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Victor, it's still great, weak. great to see you. Thank you very much. All right. Ahead here on Thank Worldwide you. Exchange. A new note from Morgan Stanley and what has now become one of the most bearish outlooks for U.S. stocks to date. Their wall of worry and the new year-end target for the S&P 500. We have that and much, much more when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time for a check on today's global hotspots and ones that could have huge implications for the world economy and for your investments. We begin in Ukraine, where its president, Vladimir Zelensky, says his forces are ready for a counteroffensive against Russia. Zelensky says Ukraine is making those plans 
despite Russia having a superior air force and the high risk of Ukrainian casualties. This comes after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said a ceasefire in the war in Ukraine could only be declared if it included a complete withdrawal by the Russian military. Now to Turkey, where its longtime leader took his third oath of office on Saturday, ushering in his latest five-year presidential term and one that could stretch his rule to nearly 25 years. It is widely feared that President Erdogan could push the NATO country further to the right, straining Western ties with a nation that's become a paramount voice in that region. And now to China. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and China's new defense minister, they're trading bars over a near miss by three warships in the Taiwan Strait. China is calling this a clear provocation. Eunice Yun is here with more. Eunice, good morning. Hey, Frank. Well, the foreign ministry reiterated Beijing's position that the U.S. is the one, quote, provoking risk and also uh, defended its warship encounter with the USS destroyer, uh, saying that this was completely lawful and safe and also called on the U.S. to correct its mistake, its wrongful action for the joint sailing with Canada uh, near Taiwan. Uh, this comes after the U.S. Navy had released a video which showed a Chinese vessel that crisscrossed in front of the U.S. destroyer in what uh, the U.S. had described as an unsafe maneuver. Uh, it was only 150 yards in front of that destroyer. Uh, the U.S. says that the U.S. and Canada were conducting uh, what it described as a routine uh, transit in the strait. The Chinese military, though, uh, for its part, is uh, saying that it handled the situation and is really uh, using this in the state press as a way to uh, try to shore up the credibility of the PLA, saying that this shows the PLA's capability, its courage, and also uh, that it was able to, do, to uh, move the destroyer and alter its course. Now, this encounter comes um, only days after another um, encounter between the U.S. and China um, in the sky, where um, a, a, one of the, the planes, the U.S. says that a Chinese military plane had buzzed one of its own uh, jets, uh, and also comes as, uh, Frank, you were describing uh, some of the conversations that were being had in Singapore at a defense security conference. Uh, Secretary Austin uh, is, was there and uh, not able to uh, speak with uh, the Chinese uh, defense minister who had rejected um, his um, approach to try to um, have those conversations. They were able to shake hands, but the, the defense secretary had said that this really uh, wasn't enough in terms of uh, encouraging more communication between the two sides. So, Eunice, we talked last week about corporate America, Jamie Dimon, Elon Musk in China. So if last week's U.S.-China narrative was kind of a goodwill tour by corporate America, how would you describe what we're seeing now? Well, it looks as though uh, the um, what we're seeing is a clash really between the security initiatives as well as the business, business initiatives, because on the one hand, um, we see that both China and the U.S. are increasingly seeing uh, national security as important to um, the future of uh, both countries. And uh, at the same time, uh, the economics in some respects is also obviously very important, but some would say gets in the way. Now, in the Chinese state media today, uh, they actually brought up that one possible uh, way to avert a worst-case scenario is to encourage some of the ties with uh, what they say are peace-loving um, parties, including, they actually mentioned Elon Musk as 
well as Jamie Dimon. So they're looking for the U.S. business elite to come in to try to um, continue to sow fences. And we are, um, uh, as we understand it, the U.S. Um, is um, reaching out to China, trying to encourage these communications at different levels. Um, US, a U.S. Uh, um, team is actually in China this week to try to uh, get those conversations going. Our, our Eunice Yoon, live in Beijing. Eunice, always great to see you. Thank you. All right, it's that time of year when the networks across NBC News, they shine a light on people who are inspiring America. This coming weekend, people like LeBron James, Eva Longoria, and others will be featured in a network special airing on Saturday and Sunday. All this week, CNBC will showcase business leaders who inspire as well. So today, one company is thriving after deciding to embrace buy one, donate one as a business strategy. This is the founder of the Bombas Sock Company in their own words. I don't think any of us looked at each other thinking, oh, sock business, that's how we're going to build something big. The idea for Bombas came around back in 2011, scrolling on Facebook, and I came across a quote that said socks are the number one most requested clothing items at homeless shelters. And eventually we thought, hey, you know what? A one-for-one business model really makes sense for this category. So let's make the most comfortable socks in the history of feet and sell as many as we can. And for everyone we sell, we donate one, and then we'll help solve this problem in our community. We sell out every season. When we first got started, we had no employees because we couldn't afford to pay anyone, including ourselves. I think one of the biggest challenges when we first started the business, you know, when we talked to friends, family, you know, business colleagues, potential investors, uh, and said that we were starting a sock company, you know, people chuckled and kind of thought that maybe we were joking. Some people laughed us out of the room. I think it really grounded us in just saying like, all right, like we're going to grind this out. We're going to bootstrap this thing. You know, if nobody else is going to believe in us, we're going to believe in ourselves. And now 10 years on, we've donated over 100 million items to shelters and organizations across the country. Being on Shark Tank is an absolute game changer for our business. Thank you. All right, guys, great decision. Great decision. Before going on Shark Tank, we had been in business for about nine months. We did about $900,000 in sales. And the two months following Shark Tank, we did over $1.2 million in sales and completely sold out of all of our inventory. And we're now the most successful company by revenue in Shark Tank history. After 10 years. Putting on a new pair of Bombas is still blown. the best feeling. I get blown away every time. Yeah. When people look at Bombas, what I hope they see is a company that's walking the walk. I hope that, you know, entrepreneurs today look at Bombas and say, wow, they've achieved not only financial success, but they did it the right way by treating people well. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area. We're just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. The rally following that better-than-expected jobs report, it does not appear to be carrying over into the new trading week. Investors now turning their attention to the Fed and the growing chorus of bearish calls for U.S. stocks. Futures mixed under just a bit of pressure. Big Tech's run just rolling on. The Nasdaq now up more than 25% this year. We lay out whether valuations for some names leading the sector, they may have hit a ceiling, or if they could break through to new highs. And U.S. regulators reportedly preparing to roll out new rules targeting this country's biggest banks in the wake of the turmoil that rocked the financial sector. It is Monday, June the 5th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. 
Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Thanks for waking up with us. Let's pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures on the back of that Friday post-jobs report rally. Looking at the markets right now, a bit of a mixed picture. We're seeing the Dow Jones up very fractionally. The S&P and the Nasdaq both down fractionally. The S&P kind of flat almost, but something to watch. All right, back to the bond market. We always watch the bond market at this time. Looking at yields right now, we're seeing the benchmark tenure at 3.74. We're still seeing the two-year elevated, about four and a half right now. So something we continue to watch. We saw a lot of investors running here for safety while we were dealing with the debt limit negotiations, but still seeing elevated yields on the short end of the curve. We also want to look at the energy sector, specifically oil on the back of Saudi Arabia's voluntary one million barrel per day production cut as part of a broader OPEC deal. Looking at WTI, that's the U.S. benchmark right now at about 73 bucks a barrel, up under 2 percent, actually off of its highs from earlier this morning. Same story for Brent at about 77 and a half, up almost 2 percent below its highs of earlier this morning and natural gas. Same story. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Frank, good Monday morning to you. Well, U.S. regulators are reportedly planning new capital requirements for this country's biggest banks. According to The Wall Street Journal, the move would involve forcing larger financial firms to boost their overall capital requirements by roughly 20 percent. The journal adds the precise amount will depend on a firm's business activities with the biggest increases expected for megabanks with big trading businesses. The paper says that regulators could unveil the new rules as early as this month. The Wall Street Journal also reporting that fast casual restaurant chain Cava is set to launch a roadshow for its initial public offering. The journal says that may begin as early as tomorrow. The paper adds that Cava, which filed for an IPO last month, plans to sell shares for between $17 and $19 each, which at the high end would value the company at around $2.2 billion. And the latest animated Spider-Man movie from Sony Pictures, swinging to the top at the box office, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, pulling in more than $120 million in its debut. Now, that marks the second biggest opening weekend of this year and the third biggest opening weekend for any Spider-Man film, Frank. Savannah, you, you were pretty excited about that Spider-Man movie. I, I want to watch it. I want to watch it. Yeah, before, <laughs> last time we talked, it was all about the Barbie movie. Now you've switched to the Spider-Man. No, no, no. I, no, no. It's still all about the Barbie movie, but <laughs> Spider-Man too. <laughs> all right, our Savannah now. Savannah, thank you very sure much. Thing. All right, it's been a while, a few weeks for tech, with the Nasdaq now trading at its highest level since April of 2022 and notching its sixth positive week in, in a row on Friday, its longest such win streak since January of 2020. The name's fueling the rally. They're really no stranger to Wall Street. As investors pile into Meta, NVIDIA, Alphabet, and a few others, the rally fueled by continued confidence that AI will be a key revenue driver in the coming years. But with several names hitting record levels, have valuations become too high? Or do these stocks, do they have more room to run? Let's ask Rocco Strauss, partner and senior internet analyst at Arite Research, as well as Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Great to have you both here. Rocco, you're here in the house. I'm going to start things off with you. Um, we're talking about some of the, the uh, big names that have run up so far this year. NVIDIA is a great example, trading at about 51 times forward earnings. Is that too expensive for what this stock offers, really being the leader when it comes to AI chips? Yeah, I mean, may- maybe, maybe let me start a bit broader, right? I mean, it looks like that we're kind of like coming slowly towards the peak of like a hype cycle, right? So hype cycles generally um, are 
you know, a lot shorter than, than the real implementation cycles where you really go into uh, revenue generation mode. So generally they're kind of like eight to 10 times longer. Um, but I think what's interesting is that when you um, kind of like look, look at valuations, it's not unprecedented. Um, we have seen that when you go back to like the 1990s or 2000s, um, you had seen even companies like Qualcomm going up 2,000% or Cisco going up or tripling in value. Um, it is just a question um, of if the concentration that you have in a few stocks right now, if that is actually healthy, especially when you think about some of the, um, the investors also having to stick okay. to valuation discipline out there. So, Rocco, um, in, all, in all fairness, you're talking about, about the tech bubble, the dot-com bubble that same period of time. So, Nancy, I'm going to toss it over to you. Are valuations getting too high? I just mentioned NVIDIA. That's a great example of a stock that's really run up on this AI hype cycle, as Rocco called it. 51 times forward earnings compared to the NASDAQ trading at about 29 times. Well, it's too expensive for us, Frank. Um, But I I was investing during that tech bubble period. And this is not that. I mean, that was peak earnings, multiples at 80 to 100 times. Um, we're, we're in trough earnings, you could argue. And so I think there's room for many of these stocks. I, that doesn't mean they're going to go straight up from here, obviously. Um, they, they will recalibrate at some point, And we will use that as an opportunity if the recalibration is material uh, to, to step in and top off some holdings. Um, recently, we've been trimming because they were well overweight technology across our strategies. But you, it's important to note that short interest is still elevated in the queues, and that leaves room for further short covering. Okay. So you probably will continue to see some sort of a melt-up um, at, at, at some point during the rest of this year. Uh, but in the near term, we're sitting back and, and sitting tight with what we already own. All right, so... One stock that's really had a big run up, looking at Apple right now, up almost 40 percent, 39 percent year to date. Not really tied to this whole AI thing. However, they do have a huge announcement later today. Um, You know, this mixed reality VR, AR headset. It's hardware. It's not software, which seems to be moving the market higher. What does that say to us about just the excitement over this and the fact that Apple's run up without a big AI announcement? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess when you want to look at the characteristics of the likely AI winners, um, you have to look at three things. So one is certainly compute power um, and the ability to actually spend in CapEx. Um, the second thing is certainly to have a lot of first-party data or to have kind of like an environment like iOS um, where you can build on. And it's the ability to kind of like build these applications, which means you need a lot of PhDs and engineering talent. Um, and when you look at, at Apple, um, I mean, it's probably less clear of, you know, like what, what, what they can do in the short term, but they can play the privacy card. So using kind of like on-device data um, to train local agents without kind of like needing to upload data to the cloud um, or cloud services and um, to run large language models. Um, and that's certainly the edge that they're going to have in AI. Yeah, uh, I think large language model seems to be the buzzword of this entire year and every company trying to figure out some way to work it in to their products and their offerings. Um, Nancy, I want to come back over to you. We just talked about Apple very briefly, but Apple kicks off its Worldwide Developers Conference today where Tim Cook and company, they're reportedly set to unveil their mixed reality headset, VR, AR. We're looking at just a wall right now, some of the big releases from Apple over the years. What do you think about this release? Is it going to be as meaningful as an iPad or even an Apple Watch? And how does this all impact Apple's position when it comes to big tech and this AI race and everything else? Well, yeah. So putting a computer on one's face is something that people, uh, some people are going to, to, to sort of shy away from. But I think from a technological standpoint, this is a, is a critical moment for Apple. It's been eight years since they've launched a new product. One of their great strengths, Frank, I believe, is that they sit back. They, they're not necessarily first to market, but they sit back 
They build um, the process around the tech. I mean, the software acquisitions that Apple's made as well as hardware have, have really led to this um, development of the mixed reality, reality pro. And, and I do think, um, I, I do think that this is critical from that standpoint. It will remain to be seen, um, what, what developers decide to do, uh, with, with, with the, the, the hardware. Right. And that will drive, I think, acceptance and adaptation to this particular, um, piece of equipment. Right. Meta hasn't had a lot of success with its VR, AR headset. And so, Rocco, you're sitting here, as I can see, you're shaking your head. I don't know what you're shaking it about, but what are you shaking your head about? One last point. Yeah, I mean, just to come back to Apple, right? I mean, when you think back when, when, when the Apple Watch came out, right? So like, there were many analysts kind of like projecting 20 million sales or 20 billion sales, 70 million sales, you know, like in the first few months, and we turned out to be like a few million or so. Um, it is less about, um, you know, like how many consumers are actually going to adopt it. It's more kind of like what kind of like um, developer environment or ecosystem can you build around it and then you have to give it a few years. Um, and that's true for Meta as well with respect to AI applications and so on before you really see revenues coming in against that. So you have a lot of lumpy upfront costs going to happen in AI um, while the real okay. revenue generation opportunity sits probably you know, like if you are maybe maybe five years out from here. Yeah, I think we're getting a little bit in the weeds. But one thing we know for sure, investors have Apple up a half a percent right now, Meta down a half a percent. Don't know if there's a direct correlation, but interesting moves in the pre-market. Rocco Strauss and Nancy Tangler, thank you both. Appreciate the insight as always. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, a developing story. As labor strikes at key ports across the West Coast, they paralyze the flow of goods. The latest on what the White House is doing to try to get shipments moving again when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. Perhaps the stock story of the day, we're talking Apple. Two price target hikes coming from Bank of America and Evercore ahead of today's developer conference event. B of A boosting its price target from 176 to 190 per share, while Evercore is going from 190 to 210 per share. As we mentioned earlier, Apple shares up about a half a percent this morning. Deutsche Bank upgrading its rating on Rio Tinto, moving it from hold to buy. Deutsche says with Rio shares down roughly 20 percent from this year's high, it sees attractive value underpinned by a high quality cash generating business. Looking at shares of Rio Tinto this morning, however, they are down fractionally. Morgan Stanley also giving a double upgrade to Equitrans Midstream's rating, moving it from underweight to overweight. Morgan Stanley citing the passage of the debt deal and language in that legislation to speed up completion of the company's Mountain Valley Pipeline. Looking at those shares this morning, up more than 4.5%. All right, turning our attention now to a developing story on the West Coast. Workers at several key facilities not showing up for work over the last few days with contract talks with employers now at a standstill. Our Lorianne LaRocco has been following the latest developments in these shutdowns and joins us now with more. Lorianne. Good morning, Frank. An alert that went out to all truckers early Sunday morning notified them the largest terminal at the port of Long Beach, TTI, would be closed for the morning shift and possibly the afternoon shift today. This comes on the heels of insufficient labor on Friday and the weekend, impacting select terminals at the ports of Los Angeles, Long Beach, Oakland, Seattle, and Winnie, which is the largest auto port for the West Coast, as well as perishables. The port of Oakland has been officially shut down as of Friday with no labor coming in. 
The fight for a fair wage is at the center of this labor showdown. The ILWU is asking for their members to get paid for their work, moving the trade that generated the ocean carrier's historic profits, noting during the pandemic, longshoremen died or fell ill from COVID. ITS Logistics tells me the closures are increasing congestion and a job where a single trucker would normally move now needs two or three truckers to clear the containers. Port officials tell me it can take up to two weeks to clear out the present congestion. This extra labor and the potential late fees are costs the shippers will pass on to the consumer. And the items in these boxes, Frank, back to school and holiday products. So, Lorianne, what are we hearing from the White House on this? Well, both CNBC and NBC reached out, and a source familiar says the White House, the Department of Transportation, and the Department of Labor are all monitoring the situation closely. The White House is encouraging all parties to, involved to continue to negotiate in good faith. The union labor halls, where the dailies, who are critical to the labor workforce, opens at 6.30 a.m. Pacific time. So we are just hours away to see if this is a repeat of Friday. Frank? All right, Lorianne, thank you very much. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today, plus a new warning for markets. The key factor one major bank says could potentially slam the brakes on the stock's ongoing rally. And June is Pride Month here at CNBC, and we're celebrating all month long and sharing the stories of corporate leaders with you. As we head to break, here's Equinox Group Chief People Officer, Aleem Dangi. Being gay is not a liability. Um, it's the creativity, the resilience, the empathy that you bring to the table that is so valued in any team, any workplace. Don't settle for anything less. Pick people to work with and places to work at, not that they will just tolerate you, but celebrate for who you are and what you bring to the table. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up, six stories you need to know before the opening bell. Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil exporter, says it will voluntarily cut oil production by one million barrels per day as part of a deal with OPEC and its allies. Those cuts are expected to take effect next month. New bearish signals for stocks. Hedge funds and other speculative investors bearish bets against the S&P. They're hitting their highest levels since 2007. That's according to Bespoke Investment Group and data from the CFTC. China's defense minister trading barbs with U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin over a recent close call by three warships in the Taiwan Strait, calling the interaction a clear provocation to China. UBS says it expects to complete its takeover of Credit Suisse by the start of next week at the earliest. This is just slightly later than executives first hoped for. UBS shares up in the pre-market. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman still on his global speaking tour, speaking in Israel this morning. He says his company is weighing possible investment opportunities in that country. After Israel, Altman heads to Jordan, Qatar, the UAE and India. And Taylor Swift concerts may cost a fortune here in the U.S., but in Argentina, nearly 100% inflation is making those tickets a bargain. Excluding fees, tickets in the standing room only area closest to the stage for Swift's two November shows are going for 75,000 pesos or just about 150 U.S. dollars. All right, back to the markets and a new note from Morgan Stanley suggesting a potential earnings drop for the S&P 500 could put the stop to the recent stock rally. From that note, while a deteriorating liquidity backdrop is likely to put downward pressure on equity valuations in the, over the next three months, we also see EPS disappointment ahead. 
as revenue growth slows and margins contract further. Morgan Stanley sees S&P 500 earnings per share coming in at $185 compared with a median of $206, so pretty bearish, and sees the S&P closing out the year at $3,900 compared with Friday's close of $4,282. The take among the most bearish on the street and the notable contrast from bullish forecasts from Goldman Sachs and several others anticipating a mild earnings growth ahead. Joining me now to discuss, Malcolm Etheridge, CIC Wealth Executive Vice President and a CNBC contributor. Malcolm, great to see you. Morning, Frank. All right, give us your view on the S&P 500, Malcolm. Are you worried that this big run-up we've seen in pretty much the first half of the year, it may be fading? I do think it's reasonable to expect it to fade. I think there's plenty of uh, bearish signals out there, even though the markets obviously are in this melt-up moment where it, it's defying gravity and is showing us that it wants to go up regardless of what the technicals are showing. I think that there are very good reasons to be bearish right here. And so you sort of want to uh, uh, hedge your bets uh, a little bit, pardon the phrase, since you just got <laughs> done telling us what the, the hedge fund managers are thinking. But I think there's some validity to that thinking. All right. So kind of walk me through your thinking. How big of is the Fed a part of your thinking? We were just showing well, uh, the CME futures when it comes to the Fed's next decision coming up on the 13th and 14th of June. There was about an 80 percent chance of a pause. Do you believe we're going to see a pause? Is that what the market needs to possibly continue this run? So I, I don't actually think a pause is what the market needs. I think obviously a pause is what the market is expecting right here. But I don't think that that helps us so much as having a, a very clear indication of where the terminal rate is in Jerome Powell's mind, if he even knows at this point. I think it's when we know where the hiking cycle stops that we actually find out uh, how bad it's going to get and we can make longer term plans from there. So right now we're all finding it out together, whether it's a skip or a pause that leaves the door open for additional hikes in the, in the future, which at the same time we're having this liquidity issue uh, due to the debt ceiling. It just makes a very choppy market where there's not a lot of long term prediction uh, you're able to make as an investor. So the pause sounds good short term, but I don't think it really solves the problem that we as longer term traders uh, really need Jerome Powell to help us solve. All right, let's talk long term. So I want to come kind of full circle. What's your take on this AI? You talked about the hiking cycle. What about the hype cycle about AI? And I see your pick. It's Microsoft. A lot of people consider that kind of an AI stock. So why are you so bullish on Microsoft right now? Because it sounded like you were kind of questioning the strength of this rally on the back of AI. Yeah, so longer term, I see Microsoft as the one true winner or the one obvious winner uh, in this AI hype cycle, quote unquote. And I'm saying, quote unquote, just because I don't think it's fair to use the word bubble here like we have been recently uh, with what's happening with regards to AI, simply because the companies that are leading the charge right now uh, aren't the same. It's not like the 90s where, you know, you have a whole bunch of companies that are coming public all of a sudden and we had never heard of them before. The companies leading the charge are, you know, Amazon and Google and Microsoft and NVIDIA, these are companies that can afford the multi-billion dollar capital outlay to be able to develop these large language models that it takes to create uh, the, the tech that each of the companies that will come public in the future are going to build on. And so for now, I think the incumbents, the large tech uh, names being the ones leading the charge make me feel a little bit better about the cycle and less okay. willing to use the word bubble. So, Malcolm, you know, we got to go. You know, we got some time constraints, but I'm surprised that you feel this way about the money that they're going to spend when the street really hated when Meta can continue to spend on the metaverse. But this might be a different story. We got to just pick this up another time. Malcolm Etheridge, okay. great to see you as always. Appreciate it. All right, that's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next. Thank you for watching.
I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.